Good morning and a very warm welcome to uh, everybody. Nice to see so many of you here uh, this morning where we're going to discuss the uh, origins of Islamist civil wars. Certainly not a trivial team in uh, our time and age. Um, this is a breakfast event hosted by the Prio Middle East Center. My name is Christian Berg Harpviken. I am uh, heading Prio's Middle East Center. We are a uh, small outfit that brings together Prio's competence uh, relevant to the Middle East with a view to uh, conduct research, provide uh, relevant policy input on uh, issues of uh, current interest. We are funded by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs through a four-year uh, flexible grant, flexible in the sense that uh, we haven't decided in advance exactly what we will research at any given time. Uh, we may set our agenda depending on what happens in uh, the world, which is a model that I hope uh, more funders would uh, emulate. Um, we are hosting a series of uh, breakfast seminars, like this one. The idea with the seminars is for people who are busy, and I'm sure most of you are, uh, to be able to uh, come by Prio, have breakfast, and have some food for thought uh, on the, in the early morning. So, therefore, it's also a compact format, one hour only. Um, and there will be more of them. We have three more seminars lined up right now for the spring. We have one on the 5th of May, which is on citizenship in the Middle East, with the main speaker being Roel Meyer. Uh, we have one on uh, Lebanon on the um, 7th of June with Basel Salouh from the Doha Institute of uh, Graduate Studies. And we have one on the security dynamics in the Gulf with Christian Coates uh, Ulrichsen from, uh, from Rice University on the 15th of June. So take note, and there may be more appearing on our web pages, so do follow, uh, do follow these as well. Today we uh, have as our main speaker, uh, Mikhail Hiberg Nagisade, who is sitting here in front. Uh, he's doing his doctorate, he's about to finish his doctorate actually at uh, Oxford on this very, very topic. And we're looking much forward to uh, listen to what Michael has to uh, has to say. We have two commentators, Stig Jarle Hansen, who is a professor at the uh, uh, Norwegian University of Life Sciences, NMBU, and we have uh, Marianne Dahl from uh, Prio. So, uh, with no further ado, uh, perhaps just say a couple of words about the structure. We'll have an introduction by Michael, that's self-evident. We'll then have uh, comments by Stig and uh, Marianne. Uh, a short exchange in the panel, and then we'll open up for Q&A. Uh, and uh, we intend to wind up in pretty much 55 minutes from now. So, Michael, the floor is yours. Thank you. So, yeah, my name is Mikhail. Uh, this presentation is basically, basically a snapshot of where I'm at with my uh, thesis. I'm planning to hand in in a few months, so uh, let's hope it goes well. Uh, the origins of Islamist insurgencies. Uh, this graph is basically a reproduction of an, uh, a graph in an article by Gladys and Rudolfsson, who have some attachment with uh, Prio, I guess. Uh, there's been a, sort of a trend in civil war uh, studies to sort of ask the question of whether there's something uniquely violent about Islam. 
the reason why this question has popped up, you know, has to do with uh, partly sort of, uh, you know, academics like Steven Pinker have pointed out that uh, there's been a general sort of trend towards decline of political violence in recent years. But levels of political violence seem to remain fairly high in uh, Muslim countries, and hence that sort of question, is there something unique about Islam? Well, um, at least quantitative studies have concluded no, if you control for variables such as youth bulges and, and uh, access to primary resources, etc. What is interesting, however, is that you do see a qualitative shift here in terms of how uh, wars, or for what reason wars ostensibly are fought. Where a very high proportion of, of uh, civil wars globally include at least one uh, Islamist uh, uh, rebel group. That shift remains fairly uh, unexplained uh, as a sort of a historical uh, trend. You do have people like uh, Barbara Walters who sort of describes this as a sort of Salafi jihadist uh, trend. I don't like that term. Uh, <laughs> and uh, what I understand to be uh, Islamist here is in the broadest sense possible. An Islamist group is a group that uh, seeks to bring about a state system based on Sharia however defined, which is extremely heterogeneous, but that's the, that's the point. You can challenge me on that afterwards if you want to. Uh, so why is this interesting? Well, first of all, because there's nothing inevitable about this sort of shift. If you look at the sort of both the primary anti-colonial and post-colonial sort of revolutionary movements throughout the Muslim world, uh, they weren't what we today would call Islamist. They were motivated by what you can often think of as a sort of a third worldist, uh, leftist, uh, socialist, you know, pan-Arabism, those types of ideologies. Very different than what is dominant today. Uh, this man to the left here standing next to Gandhi is uh, Abdul Rafa Khan. He was the dominant, like the predominant uh, sort of political figure among the Pashtun people in Afghanistan and uh, Pakistan during the final years of the British uh, Raj, so like the British... Uh, empire in uh, India. The Pashtun people today have sort of the unfortunate reputation of being associated with the Taliban, right, in, in these different instances. But it's very interesting, Abdul Ghaffar Khan led a political movement that was completely pacifist, and it was a very sort of modern uh, Pashtun nationalist movement, which relied heavily on Islam for its sort of rhetoric and imagery. But it was still a sort of... Um, in its vision, it was a Pashtun nationalist organization. And so it's so a thing I sort of ask repeatedly throughout my thesis is, is you know, we could imagine a, a present that would have gone differently if figures such as him had won and succeeded in their sort of political struggles. And instead, we are at this uh, juncture in history, right, where figures such as the Taliban have become dominant. That being said, you know, in, in multiple cases, um, that shift hasn't occurred, you know, notably among uh, the, the predominant uh, sort of groups among the Kurds, for example, are, are, aren't Islamists, or lesser known sort of uh, struggles such as that of the Baluch in, uh, in Pakistan. The point being that uh, in the 50s and 60s, the assumption, sort of the dominant uh, academic assumption, was that as the countries of the world went towards political modernity, religion would lose its significance in the political sphere. Uh, doesn't seem to have been the case, right? And uh, so some scholars have started asking if there's been a return of religion into the political sphere. This is just to emphasize what I'm trying to do where <clears throat> from one of my cases. 
Uh, blue line is uh, dyads involving, uh, and at least one Islamist group. If you look at the sort of the, the, the early stages of the Somali Civil War, the, there weren't, it was fought over something else, right? And, and was far more intense as well. What I'm trying to do is not to expand the intensity of violence, but rather that qualitative shift, you know. It was first fought over something else. Why do you have this qualitative shift towards Islamist actors popping up in that context? What does the, the civil war literature tell us about this? Where? Very little. <laughs> um, one reason for this is that um, civil war literature has tended to treat ideology as epiphenomenal. So it's been, it was stuck for a long time in this uh, discussion between uh, you know, grievance explanation and sort of uh, greed explanations, etc. That didn't focus on ideology having a significance unto itself. Uh, there's been a few fairly recent articles, uh, including by Toft and, and uh, Walter, excuse me, that have focused on Islamism specifically, uh, which their uh, explanations are like strictly instrumentalist. Uh, where Barbara Walter's theory, for example, she argues that you know there's more Salafi jihadist groups today. Uh, that's what she calls them, right? Uh, because Salafi jihadism can confer strategic advantages on, on rebel groups. So if you associate yourself with Al-Qaeda tomorrow, you'll attract foreign fighters, funding, etc. cetera. Uh, that is fine, uh, but what she doesn't do is she doesn't specify, um, you know, strategic thinking essentially means to weigh the positives against the negatives, right? Uh, if you associate yourself with Al-Qaeda, uh, you'll probably see the drones start hovering fairly soon will face intensified counterinsurgency efforts. Uh, you will uh, also sort of exclude the possibility of negotiating with many of the actors you're interacting or competing with. So what I'm trying to say is, if you want to think about this ideology as simply an outcome of strategic choice, which in itself is an unrealistic assumption, you do have to sort of specify the conditions under which adopting a specific ideological position actually is advantageous. She doesn't do. She, she says that this ideology is inherently more advantageous than the, than the other options. You know, being Salafi jihadist is some, somehow more advantageous than being a communist group, for example. And what that leaves her theory is, her theory essentially would lead us to assume that every single Muslim group ever would embrace Islamism, which is kind of like problematic. <laughs> um, you do, have, however, have a good sort of literature that focuses on more mid-range explanations. Um, focusing, for example, on, on the connections between uh, tribes resisting the encroaching uh, uh, state upon peripheral areas as sort of being associated with uh, the Islamist trend. Uh, Aisha Ahmed wrote an extremely good book on, on Somalia about uh, the significance of the local business community uh, in supporting Islamist actors. And you also have explanations like focusing on the rivalry between Iran and uh, Saudi Arabia. My approach uh, to this was, so my, my thesis is extremely sort of uh, inductive and uh, theory building uh, oriented. Right, start from this position that, okay, this is my first step. <clears throat> you have this ma macro historical shift. Can we just look at this very broadly and figure out some very broad patterns? Well, one thing that sort of pops up in the literature a lot is that 
this argument that a lot of Muslim countries are stuck in an in-between position, uh, in a transition from pre-modern to modern societies, where the, the, the state itself in many cases was a legacy of, of the colonial era and post-colonial elites uh, who initiated sort of developmentalist policies uh, seeking to create a sort of a national identity, uh, in many cases brought about more social fragmentation than sort of a successful nation building. So policies like, you know, state-led uh, economic development, industrialization, urbanization, would in several cases tear apart the social fabric of, of, uh, of uh, Muslim societies, destroying, you know, tribal institutions, clan institutions, etc. But with the state failing to replace these institutions, making itself the sort of uh, onus for, uh, for loyalty from, uh, from its citizens. And so, just as a sort of very broad, you know, intuition, there seems to be in the case in multiple uh, contexts that uh, uh, there's a social vacuum, in a sense, that the state was unable to fill, uh, and which was, which was filled by something else, uh, which in many cases were uh, sort of Islamic uh, institutions. How can we sort of make this more specific? Well, jump down to the micro level, where. <clears throat> I was very inspired by this. Uh, there's this book by uh, Robert Gould where he compares the different revolutions in, in France. And he says that you know, the 48 revolution was a class-based revolution. Uh, the 71 uh, Paris Commune was a sort of neighborhood solidarity type thing. Uh, and the reason for this ideological difference, he argues, has to do with mobilization patterns. So social capital at the point of a political crisis was placed such that it made sense in 48 to mobilize along class lines. But in 71, it made sense to mobilize along sort of, again, sort of uh, city loyalty type, um, type lines. And that makes ideologies, if you want to call it measurable, it at least makes it sort of tangible. Uh, <clears throat> the way I started thinking about the Islamization of a society then isn't some kind of like abstract uh, spiritual awakening or, or something like that. Those explanations have their merit, but it's not what I'm trying to do. Rather, it's to trace sort of Islamization as a function of social capital shifting towards religious institutions and networks. Meaning, this is sort of the model I use. So I have 11 cases overall in my, in my thesis. And this is the model I use to sort of deal with each case. Where I argue that, you know, we can, what I'm, I'm trying to do is build a set of sort of causal pathways by which an Islamist insurgency might develop. Then I look at each case through the lens of this and use that to build sort of different causal uh, pathways, right? So I argue that, okay, look at, let's look at one case. Uh, each uh, social context will be uh, um, defined by a pre-war social landscape where a society consists of institutions and networks where uh, social capital is unequally distributed between networks that have different ideological profiles. So you can imagine a society that is dominated by labor unions, uh, by religious seminaries, etc. What happens if a political shock occurs? Uh, who will rise to, so for example, if there's a war uh, and the state collapses? which actors are best positioned to step into that vacuum to take on sort of governance functions, uh, public goods provision. Uh, or in some contexts, such as Somalia, which I'll mention in a second, or in parts of Somalia, 
just so happens that that was uh, religious networks. And at that point, you might see a sort of a shift in social capital towards religious networks, which makes political mobilization along Islamist lines uh, possible. But the rising significance of, of Islamist actors isn't the same as uh, starting an insurgency. So Islamist actors can also be sort of nonviolent. Uh, but the, and so the sort of the second, or in this case, the, the fourth juncture, uh, I try to study sort of if there's different triggers for uh, violence between uh, uh, either the state uh, or other actors and sort of the emerging uh, Islamic uh, institutions. <coughs> So my method is a sort of a longitudinal comparative study where I try to build a theory. Uh, I do this by, by um, picking cases at the nation level that are as different as possible, but which share the outcome in that they have at least one uh, Islamist insurgency. So Somalia, uh, Northern Caucasus in Russia, then parts of Pakistan. Then I go into each case and compare subnational regions, uh, which are as similar as possible, but which differ on outcome. So within Russia, for example, I, I compared Chechnya, which had an Islamist insurgency, with Dagestan, which really, uh, didn't have an Islamist insurgency. It had an Islamist terror campaign, which is something different. Um, I compare uh, south-central Somalia, which is the area around Mogadishu, which did have an Islamist insurgency, with Somaliland, which didn't. Uh, this has to do with my uh, my uh, case selection. I won't. You, you can ask about that later if you you're interested. Basically, th this table here is uh, a sort of just a visualization a visualization of what I'm trying to do in in relation to uh, this uh, model, um, where where uh, the sort of the different junctures correspond to that. I, I won't go into that in detail. But I will tell you sort of the story of Somalia. Um, Basically, south-central Somalia is, is where the insurgency eventually sort of al-Shabaab became dominant, before that, the Islamic Courts Union. What I argue is that uh, south-central Somalia was defined by pre-war social landscape, at least in Mogadishu, which was uniquely fragmented. That's partly a, a consequence of sort of colonial era policies, but also the developmental policies of the, the dictator that ruled in the 80s and 70s. Political shock occurred, which was the collapse of the state in the, around sort of 91, between 89 and 91. Uh, at which point, Mogadishu fell into a state of endemic violence where no single actor was able to, to provide stability to Mogadishu. Uh, part of the reason for this was that clan institutions had fallen apart. Uh, they fragmented and devolved into sort of from clan institutions to sub-clan institutions to sub-sub-clan sub institutions, etc., uh, with the whole sort of city being dominated by um, banditry. Out of frustration with the lack of governance in Mogadishu, you see this uh, uh, neighborhood-level efforts at bringing back stability uh, along Islamic lines, which led to the development of Sharia courts at the neighborhood level, an uncoordinated effort largely. Uh, and that's the shift in social capital, right? You suddenly have these concrete institutions that embody Islam as, as, as their sort of guiding system, but uh, which was set up for the purpose of governance. What happened is that you know, rival warlords saw these Sharia courts as a threat and started pushing them militarily. 
that allowed a small faction called Al-Shabaab to uh, essentially stage sort of a coup internally in, in the Islamic Courts Union to seize the broader movement, uh, outcompeting moderates and, and um, uh, um, sort of steering the, the movement towards insurgency. Outcom uh, oh yeah, we can talk about that. Uh, then you can compare that to, to Somaliland, for example, where at least by comparison, it was more sort of homogeneous uh, where, uh, and, and defined by stronger clan institutions. Uh, when the state collapsed, those institutions allowed the sort of the dominant political party to uh, utilize these pre-existing traditional institutions to hold national reconciliation conferences involving you know, tribal elders uh, uh, and other sort of tribal inst uh, leaders. Uh, leading to a, a sort of governance project that by comparison was fairly uh, successful. So there you have like two sort of different causal pathways, right? Where one had this complete collapse of society, I guess, which led to a social vacuum, which allowed for Islamist actors to jump in, and one where it didn't. This is just uh, something I did, which was to, if you trace every group back to their sort of pre-war roots, so there's very little sort of rebranding uh, occurring, which is what something, someone like Barbara Walters would expect, right? There's, there's um, uh, like groups like Al-Shabaab, it's not like they uh, rebranded from something else and then became, uh, became Islamist, right? Uh, most of the Islamist groups had their roots in pre-war religious networks, and other groups didn't. And this is just to emphasize the, the sort of distribution of violence. So you see uh, the, the, the outbreak of violence in the north there in, in 2004-2011 is largely sort of one of uh, uh, clashes and, and terrorist attacks, uh, with most of it being concentrated in the south. What you see to the left there is just something I use for, uh, for temporal variance, where there was an attempt in the 90s to stage uh, a sort of uh, an Islamist interaction. Uh, but what I sort of argue in my thesis is that it didn't have the social foundations to actually do this. Uh, because that's the, this was before that social shift, right, where uh, social capital was embodied in the Islamic courts. So it didn't have the social foundations to sort of lead a stable evolution, and that sort of fizzled out over time. Uh, yeah, uh, I won't go into my other cases because this will be too long. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, just to point out that uh, I do look at four cases uh, in, um, in uh, Northern Caucasus. Uh, you can ask me about that after if you want to. And then I look at uh, Fatah, uh, MWFP, and uh, Balochistan in Pakistan. And essentially what I'm trying to do, right, is if you think about what happened in Mogadishu as one causal pathway, uh, I'm, I'm repeating the, this exercise multiple times with the goal of sort of establishing a set of causal pathways that Maybe it's possible to sort of limit the ways in which uh, this happens to, you know, two, three mechanisms uh, and to sort of bring some uh, order out of uh, the chaos. Uh, I guess I'll stop there. Thanks a lot, Michael. Um, you can have a seat at the stage and we'll invite up uh, Stig Jarle Hansen and Marianne Dahl. And of course, neither of you had seen the presentation beforehand, so we don't expect you necessarily to comment on the exact use of each single literature reference. Uh, but I am sure that both of you would have thoughts on uh, what you think about the overall approach that Michael is uh, presenting to us. And uh, 
uh, whether his criticism of uh, alternative explanations uh, is a fair one uh, and whether this really brings to the table new insights that uh, can re renew the debate on Islamist mobilization and perhaps mobilization in uh, conflictual areas on the world more generally. Stig, please. Yes, uh, thank you for being invited here and thank you for an uh, excellent presentation. Uh, I'm very happy that we have this uh, discussion about Islamist mobilization and uh, of course been working it, uh, on it for a couple of years, a couple of decades maybe. And uh, I'm also very happy that you kind of shake up the instrumentalist approach a little bit, you know, uh, because as you say, where is the rebranding? And in the Somali case, it's of course, it's not there. Uh, the devil is in the details somewhere. If you go to Mali, you can argue maybe that Yadagali did that just to get into the tribal hierarchy. But it's very welcome that you take that approach. Uh, I wonder about two things. One of the things is maybe something that you have that need to be fleshed out more. And the other thing is uh, perhaps... Uh, uh, something that uh, springs to mind when you, for example, look into the Somali trajectory. Uh, you know, uh, if you look at Somali history, you might have different stages where you had different types of ideology. In the post-colonial state, you had a more democratic approach, unfortunately based on a kind of fascist constitution borrowed from Italy. And then you had something that actually resembled a little bit of a Baptist approach by uh, Siad Bader. You know, he, it's quite close to Baptist. You had a little bit Mussolini coming in there. Uh, and he d discredited himself quite badly. And his whole uh, secularist Baptist approach, you know, in one sense, you can talk about anti-clan fundamentalism in the early 70s, but you can also talk about anti-religion uh, anti inside uh, Siad Bairis, uh, Siad Bairis, uh, ideology. And uh, there was a big Somali discussion around family laws. And I think that discussion in the 70s is familiar with from other countries, both Afghanistan and other places. Uh, and then you had uh, more or less a clanist rebellion that also ended up being discredited when you actually had uh, two rebel movements, maybe in 1988, uh, maybe three. And then it ended up during the year 2000, I think, if I remember correctly, uh, closely approaching to 13 different warlord fractions based on these three original movements. And my point is that uh, writers like uh, Samuel Huntington is over overlooked in his writings. Like Gilles Kepel, they talk about this vacuum created by the absence of other ideologies. Uh, that you actually left out several uh, ideologies. Baptism was discredited, maybe familiar to others uh, in other places of the world. Uh, you had, uh, to a certain extent, the failure of democracy, uh, and you had uh, actually a kind of failure of the clan-based traditional institutions uh, also. So it's a kind of vacuum that prepares the stage for a new ideology. And this might feed into the Roy Kepel debate about the radicalization of Islam or Islamification of radicalism as well. You know, you, you grasp new things. So I wonder if this vacuum should be, uh, should be more clearly flushed out, that this is a stage that is there and for the grasp because the alternative simply has uh, not, uh, not appeared. Uh, my second point is uh, you uh, talk about undermining social institutions, etc., etc. I, I think you're on to something. 
but I do think that a highlight here is maybe security deliverance for or read or uh, ordinary people. If you talk about Afghanistan, you have the original creation myth of the Taliban and Mullah Umar. And if you talk about uh, Somalia, you see Shebab flushing up as a kind of alternative to the warlords that really just cares about themselves, mainly. You know, not all of them, but most of them at least. So it's a kind of security uh, vacuum and uh, where people grasp what they can grasp. And in fact, it's uh, kind of funny to me to have the same stories that circulated around Mullah Omar as a kind of Afghan uh, Robin Hood in many ways in the early stages, circulating in Mogadishu about, uh, for example, Mukhtar Robo. It's some of the same essence. So if I were you, I would have flushed that out. Uh, but at the same time, maybe avoid some of the mistakes that is done in West Africa by researchers where they equal this automatically with police suppression and you don't have that in all cases. So it's a kind of simplistic approach by some of the schoolers like uh, Marc-Antoine de Perlois. I know he has been here before, so I'm probably, that, that says that this is something that can be generalized and I don't think it's uh, generalizable when it comes to police suppression. Uh, I also would like to stress that uh, this is hard to talk about without entering into conspiracy theory, but there is an element of state support of some of these organizations also. You can go to the Pakistani example, CIA Haq, you know, fleshing out religious movements in the 80s just to sustain himself, a kind, maybe a kind of a little bit instrumentalism there. Uh, you can look at Malian politics towards uh, Algeria, and in Sudan, in Somalia, it's actually possible if you talk about the 80s, 90s generation to also talk about specifically Turabist influence. You know, if you talk about, uh, if you talk about, for example, uh, Alita al-Islamiya, uh, Turabi is very closely involved. And this is a challenge for you maybe because some of those sources needs to be collected in Khartoum and not necessarily in Mogadishu. But if you talk to some of the older movement leaders, that's okay. So you have a kind of interesting instrumentalist, not necessarily coming from the ground, but coming from outside that might play into these uh, processes that might be interesting to look into. And a last point from my side would be um, basically... <sighs> It's unfair that I criticize for you, uh, for, uh, you for this because I haven't seen what you write, but you said that uh, Al-Sheba was a kind of coup within the Islamist Union. You know, they broke out because the Islamists uh, included female leaders in the negotiations in, in Eritrea mainly. So it's a kind of a little bit simplistic approach. But the interesting thing about the Shebab in its early phase, it was still floating on this idea of the Sharia court as providing justice. It was seen as a part of them. And I do have a lot of sympathy for that view because I was there in 2006 during the Sharia court and I was there in 2005 and I saw this amazing difference where I could travel through the city with just one guard uh, the year after I had to be stopped in a lot of uh, checkpoints. So, so they managed to steal the glory of the Sharia court but at the same time, they um, they ruptured themselves out of that alliance very clearly, and they, you can see it in the making. But but uh, they made that decision and uh, created their own fraction. Um, I, I will also, before I end, also highlight that when you talk about security deliverance, 
I think that, and you might have gotten that point, but it's uh, something that I think Aisha Ahmed will stress in relation to her business community also, because I worked a lot together with Aisha. Uh, so we have discussed this quite a lot. So if, when you see a business community integration, that has something to do with protection in relations to what they're actually doing as well. I guess that's my... Thanks a lot, Stieg. That's, uh, that's quite rich, and I'm afraid we'd need a couple of days of <laughs> discussion to address all of these points. Uh, so, uh, Michael, I'd, I'd suggest that you pick one uh, that you want to engage with rather than, uh, than um, trying to respond to all of this. You can do it now, or you can do it after Marianne's comments, and then I know that the two of you will also have a chance to discuss some of these issues later. Well, I guess I'll just address it now. Uh, actually, so I guess I apologize because it might not have been fully clear in my uh, presentation, but the, the big point I was trying to make in uh, Somalia was essentially what you're saying, right? That the alternatives were discredited. And, and I have this type of sort of last man standing argument in, in Somalia that there was no alternatives. And that's why, why sort of uh, religious figureheads locally became... Uh, that's who uh, civilians and, and local businessmen, etc., look to as uh, stability providers. Sharia was suddenly seen as the only thing that could uh, bring about stability at the neighborhood level. Uh, also worth saying when I said uh, a coup was a bad word, uh, what I meant is that uh, essentially what you said, uh, you have this initially these Sharia courts at the neighborhood level, and they were ideologically, they were very different. Some were very sort of fundamentalist, others were more. Uh, you had figureheads such as Sheikh Sh uh, Sharik, who uh, was later embraced by the international community. Initially, he was seen as a sort of part of these radicals, you know, militants. Uh, was later embraced by the... Um, but my point is that Al-Shabaab managed to outcompete those figures and, and sort of turn what was at first a movement for uh, stability, uh, turn it into a, a sort of an uprising. Uh, and and uh, a point I make is that there you have an argument about outbidding that occurs within uh, an Islamist group rather than sort of an Islamist uh, sort of a non-Islamist group rebranding as an Islamist group to to compete against uh, other rebel groups, you know. It's, a, it's a sort of a highly specified condition under which an outbidding logic might make sense rather than, yeah. Super. Marianne? Well, thank you for a really interesting uh, presentation, Michael. Uh, and I, I really think that going into this shift towards an uh, Islamic civil wars is really interesting. And uh, I think you do really solid work here, which is going to lead to a successful PhD defense at uh, some point soon. So I want to um, uh, take a somewhat different approach uh, and talk a little bit about the theory and push you a little bit on this. So if I understand your theory correctly, it's at a very basic level, it's about this modern modernization process, which has taken away institutions that were needed and not replace them with new institutions. And this creates this vacuum where it's easy for Islamist rebel groups to go in and fill this vacuum. But this, modern, this half modernization process has taken place in many different parts, but yet you see different outcomes. So I wanted to know a little bit more about why, why do you see some parts, some regions, where you do see these institutions being filled by the states, by, and other places you do not see them. 
And then I wanted to talk a little bit about whether these processes might be endogenous. So why do you not see them? So could that be because you do have a lot of armed conflict going on, which makes it harder for the state to build institutions that could offer people, um, uh, could provide for these basic needs, which makes it easier to mobilize. Uh, and then I wonder whether, is this about radical Islamism? Or is this, this going in and uh, filling this vacuum uh, and providing for some welfare fair goods, which I think it's also about here. We see a lot of rebel groups doing this. So if we look to Colombia, for example, uh, we see that rebel groups do this, but they do not have this Islamist uh, approach to this. So is this more a generic way of going about to mobilize people, or is this about uh, Islamists? So I also wanted to know a little bit more about what is it about Islamist um, radicalism, which it makes it different from other types of mo uh, mobilization processes. And then lastly, I want to talk a little bit about the countries that your theory, like how well does it explain other uh, uh, Muslim countries? So if I'm not an Islamist expert, so I might go, just go extremely wrong here, but my impression is that you, you, uh, in the Gulf states, you do not have this much of this type of uh, mobilization. So why is that the case? Is it because they do have these institutions or is it about income? So I want to go back to Paul Collier and uh, uh, <laughs> of course it's probably about both. But when you, you hadn't done the, you were going to do some quantitative analysis, right? Yes, so uh, I think it's <laughs> at least worth controlling for. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so the big finding of Paul Collier is, or his big argument is that you have, when you have opportunity costs, when they are low, you're much more likely to see uh, violent mobilization. And this is different from nonviolent mobilization. So could it just be that it's basically about income, that in these societies you're looking at, people don't have very good opportunities in the labor market and joining a rebel group is therefore much more attractive than it is other places. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Thanks a lot, Marianne. Yeah. <laughs> um, Same limitations as earlier, Mikael. I, okay, I want to make sure that not the audience answer also gets everything. a chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, one thing I would say about uh, Islamic radicalism is I I don't use radicalism at all. And actually, I, I um, have this, this is just a personal view of people as well, is uh, people tend to follow <laughs> leaders. Um, it's about sort of uh, this, essentially that something is available to bring about stability or other types of sort of public goods. Uh, it is an attempt at developing a general theory. So this is a thing that occurs a lot. People think that I'm, I'm trying to specialize on Islam specifically. Um, my background is a sort of political science thing where I'm trying to find a pattern in terms of how people react to instability in general. Someone pointed out to me once that my argument isn't real about Islam at all. And I said, fair enough. It, it isn't necessarily. I'm not saying that, that there's nothing unique about Islam or that you know, there's, there's, uh, this would recur the exact same way in other contexts. My argument is just that, you know, when there's instability, you might see repeated uh, patterns to how people uh, react. I will say one thing about the income thing. Um, definitely, that's, that's uh, part of it. Uh, it's not just uh, about sort of um, security as pu public goods. This can be multiple different. 
One thing that's interesting is that in some parts of the world uh, where income levels have risen uh, at the subnational level, that led to instability. And the reason is, for example, if you look in the Pashtun areas in, in Pakistan, when people gained access to, so for, for example, a lot of people went as uh, uh, labor migrants to the Gulf region and came back with a lot more money than they had there before. But when they came back, they were really unhappy because they faced these uh, tribal institutions, which were uh, very hierarchical. Uh, meaning that they had very little political and social influence, but they had money. And, uh, but since you're not uh, dependent on sort of tribal elders for patronage, uh, you have the independence to uh, challenge them, right? So, uh, yeah. Thanks a lot. I wonder if we'll uh, pull in the audience at this stage and, uh, and invite uh, questions. And some of you may have noted that while this is a Mideast breakfast seminar, the three cases that... Um, Mikael um, emphasizes, are not in the Middle East. Islam is certainly relevant to the Middle East, but feel free to bring in Middle East case illustrations as, uh, as, as well. Lars Gule. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you. Um, I, uh, I sympathize with, the, with the, your failed modernization approach. I think that might be very useful and fruitful. Uh, but why Islamism? Why not nationalism? Why not socialism, communism as the alternative? Why, has the, uh, why, why do we see this ideological hegemony of Islamism? And then going back to the Middle East, we can talk about it starting perhaps in Egypt in the late 60s, early 70s. And in the 80s, there was a theory banded about uh, explaining the Islamist resurgence, and that was oil money. And you're talking about social capital, but you did not talk about funding. The uh, importance of actually sustaining these groups through means from Saudi Arabia, Gulf states, uh, Gaddafi was also funding a lot of these oppositional groups creating an ideological hegemony for these groups because they were willing to use violence against their opponents. So they established a position where competitors, ideological competitors who could take over from uh, the failed ideologies of, for example, Egypt after the defeat in the war in 67, uh, was ensured by oil money. That was a simplistic and maybe an instrumentalist explanation, but uh, it still, it has some traction. And what uh, Stigiole said about the funding from different state actors, you know, for their own purposes, uh, should also be considered. And maybe you have already done so, but uh, it was not in, in yeah, the course, presentation. Yeah. So I wanted to supplement uh, this yeah. and, and hear your comments on that. Thank you. No, it, it's, a, it's a great point. Thank you. It's, uh, and it's important. Um, the thing is, my argument would be that, that uh, you have to trace that somehow. And one way of tracing that is to look at that uh, pre-war social landscape, right? Um, so a very obvious case, right, would be in uh, Pakistan where you have these religious seminaries popping up, you know, because Iran and Saudi Arabia are paranoid about each other and then also the Afghan jihad. Well, that signifies a shift in social capital where young men can go to seminaries and get uh, a religious education. Uh, and more importantly, 
social capital is in those seminaries, right? Because you, now you have networks that are outside of the tribal uh, uh, institutions, uh, allowing people to organize around sort of in a more independent fashion. So if you're a, a, a person from a lower family uh, to, uh, who within a sort of a traditional Pashtun uh, hierarchy wouldn't have necessarily have much prospect of being a big leader or something like that, you can go to the seminary or you can go to, to Afghanistan and uh, make new friends and maybe get access to some weapons and money. And then you can use that for... Um, but what is interesting though, and I should note, is um, in some cases this failed. So in Pakistan, for example, uh, the state, because a big part of um, reason why why Taliban uh, grew up in uh, or appeared among the Pashtun in uh, Pakistan was that uh, Islamabad tried to undermine Pashtun nationalism, which is a threat to uh, because Islamabad is in Punjab, right, and and or Punjabi dominated. Uh, so to undermine Pashtun nationalism, you know, Islamism was promoted. It, it has tried to do the same thing ab uh, among the Baluch. And it's largely failed, the, the sort of Islamism. Uh, it succeeded in Iran, among the Baluch in Iran, but not in Pakistan. So, so what I'm trying to say is, is we shouldn't assume that throwing money at the thing will necessarily lead to, to a shift. Uh, in a lot of cases, it's what Stig Ali said is, uh, for some reason, uh, the previous ideologies such as communism or, or nationalism was delegitimized locally, uh, or, and also transnationally, right, with the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union. And uh, in those contexts, uh, money becomes a push factor, I would argue. So, yeah. Marianne, Stig, anything to add? Yeah, I, I just want to, there's many things that I want to add, but I should <laughs> probably not, uh, not do it here, but uh, later maybe. Uh, I was catched on to your comment about uh, these uh, people returning from the Gulf to, to uh, East Africa, you know, where you have the Salafis, the Wahhabis coming home, they don't get access to the mosque uh, and they create their own mosque. And you, in some cases you have youth rebellions. But what is very interesting here is that a lot of these cases, like the uh, Red Mosque in Nairobi, like uh, the Bumwani uh, Riyadh Mosque, like mosques in Kampala, this turns out into something different, a more urban terrorist campaign, yeah. like Hijira, like ADF in its earlier inception, not later. Uh, and so it's not always successful, and that's something interesting that we can discuss in the future, but uh, uh, more interesting than related to your presentation, I might. Also, just a super quick point is uh, a lot of those people also return to, uh, say, in the Somali context, to Somaliland and Puntland, which is like traditionally regarded as more li religiously conservative as well. But still, it was in Mogadishu that. Yeah. So, yeah. Other questions? Sorry. Yes. Um, thank you so much. This was fascinating. And I, I think like, like Mariana and, and some of the other audience, I had, my first question was why Islam? And I think you addressed that really well. I mean, it, it, it could have been anything. It could be soccer hooligans again. Um, so then that led to my second question, which is why insurgency? And I think, I think, um, I think at least from the presentation, it, it wasn't quite clear why these groups choose to use violence to achieve, the, achieve their outcomes. And not only why do they choose to use violence, but why is something as to the level of insurgent violence? And you briefly mentioned, you know, the use of political terror as possibly an alternative, but I'd love to hear more about, you know, why they choose to use extreme organized violence rather than lower level violence, or rather than 
you know, a process of negotiating for what they want. And so I think this is where there's more interaction with the state or whatever you might want to, to, to call it, the quasi-state. Um, and that, that's something that, that's a bit missing from at least the story as presented here. Um, because I think in the end, violence is costly. So you might, there might be two, two, two parts to this. One is that the group is, is choosing violence and perhaps violence has become less costly for some reason. And that could be through external support or something like that. Um, but the other piece of this is that violence becomes the only option because of the negotiations and the interaction with, with the quasi-state or the state. So I would just love to hear more about, um, about those dynamics. So uh, this is why I have this, uh, that, uh, that uh, inductive model I talked about, you know, where it's the social landscape and then disruption and then militarization and then insurgency, right? Uh, because what I do there is look at sort of, if you look at each case and then you think about this as different junctures of decision making or, or where things can go one way or the other, uh, have this uh, more sort of complex uh, model, which is impossible to read, <laughs> which is why I didn't put it here, where you can think, you know, militarization, like, yes, no. It could, it could have gone down in sort of the negotiation route, or it could have gone to terrorism, or it could have gone to insurgency. Um, that's not predetermined, right? Uh, as you, I think you're hinting at, is uh, it can go different directions. One argument I make, for example, in, uh, in, uh, with regards to Mogadishu is that it became the inevitable option because, uh, okay, there was reoccurring attempts at uh, state building in, in uh, Mogadishu area. Uh, Islamists were first included for a short time and then they were pushed out. And uh, then uh, rival warlords became increasingly sort of fearful of the Islamic courts and violence became really widespread. Added to that is the conspiracy theories that CIA started handing out money to uh, to the rival warlords, you know. Um, eventually, violence became sort of the only option because you had to defend yourself. And then that uh, runs out of control, right, where it just becomes a full-on uh, attempt to take over the, the state or non-state <laughs> in Somalia. Um, then compare that to, to Somaliland, right, where... where, where um, which is traditionally, again, is considered the most sort of religiously conservative, like on the, on the, on the surface at least. Uh, we also have this big return of, of people inspired by Saudi-type uh, Islam, uh, often associated with, uh, with the business community. But the state-building process was willing to integrate these elements into uh, the state, state itself. And so that didn't make... Islamism, sort of, if, if, if you think about sort of uh, Islamist factions that being, being constituted uh, by a spectrum of, you know, moderates to people willing to use violence, uh, what I argue is that in Somaliland, uh, probably the people who were more moderate were sort of dominant among the Islamist factions. Uh, I'm thinking moderate in terms of willingness to use violence, not in terms of uh, uh, other things. Um, because they were included in the political process, whereas the opposite happened in, in Mogadishu, right, where uh, the, the violence from outside actors essentially out led to the uh, moderates within the Islamic Courts Union being outcompeted uh, by actors such as Al-Shabaab. So, yeah. Uh, just a final quick point. Um, that, that spectrum from terrorism and, and, uh, and uh, to insurgency is often a capacity thing question. So uh, one thing I argue, for example, in, in Dagestan is... Uh, Terrorism became, uh, first of all, it came a lot later because of the institutional structure, but also it's like, um, you know, Chechnya collapsed, right? 
uh, obviously because there was one insurgency first and then, yeah. The ter terrorism is defined by sort of, you know, civil war is a question of like competitive state building and that necessarily requires uh, the state to be rather weak. Jürgen? I didn't say it at the outset. The plan is actually to post a recording of the del deliberations. And if you have any objections to that, uh, we're willing to comply because I didn't say that beforehand. So just let me know uh, before you leave if, you, um, if you're uncomfortable with this being posted as a sound file. And we uh, simply won't do it. Okay. <laughs> Jürgen Jensagen. Um, uh, researcher here at Prio. I have a question regarding this, this um, how you, you label... <coughs> how you label ideology, because you were talking in, in the beginning about sort of nationalist ideology or secular nationalist ideology uh, failing and Islamism sort of being uh, as a, um, a different ideology to that. I was wondering, in, in your study, how do you think about sort of the difference between transnational Islamism and nationalist Islamism? I mean, just to take sort of one one group, uh, Hamas would be a typical nationalist Islamist. So, so they're combining the ideology of nationalism, but they're taking out the secular aspect of it. So they're not shedding nationalism as such. Um, so, so for you, how would that be different in terms of um, what drives um, these type of groups? So I, I don't necessarily deal with that explicitly because, uh, as I said, you know, I, I, I deal with this broader phenomena as broadly as possible. Where I, I just say that, you know, if this is Sharia is the, the goal, you know, then then you're Islamist. But, but I absolutely recognize that there's a difference in that regard. Uh, in terms of sort of their, um, to what extent they integrate uh, sort of or appropriate more nationalist ideas. Uh, in the Somali case, for example, there's uh, also that uh, there's a sort of a shift over time where you have something called Hezbollah Islam, which was uh, sorry um, uh, Al Ittihad, which was a sort of a very nationalist-oriented uh, form of Islam, and but that shifted over time, you know, with actors such as Al Shabab uh, jumping in. What I would argue, though, is that sort of usually the significance of this in terms of the outbreak of war is expressed locally. Um, even though a group is sort of, it might have a, a sort of a, a, a often you know like people uh, you have this sort of um, career um, terrorists if you want to call them that, who who jump between uh, uh, civil wars and become part of the leadership sometimes of of these types of uh, insurgencies. They might be influential, uh, but oftentimes you need sort of the the the. Uh, for, uh, like a fertile ground for them to gain influence. So, for example, in in, in uh, Somalia, Al Qaeda attempted to uh, to make inroads in the mid 90s because they were like, yeah, this is a collapsed state. This should be easy. And if you read their sort of internal deliberations, you know, they uh, that's their initial sentiment, and then they realized that, yeah, people don't like us. Uh, but then they became sort of influential in uh, Al Shabaab much later. Uh, I argue that that was just an example that um, even sort of a group that Al-Shabaab that ostensibly labels itself as uh, like you know, with the transnational brand of Al-Qaeda is still a process that's very dominated by local uh, the local actors themselves, right? So, yeah. 
Thanks, uh, Mikael. Uh, Stig, and this is actually the last round. So yeah, if you have any final no, no, reflections uh, as well. The, the, the differences between nationalist and internationalist uh, brands of Islam, it's much more vague in the field than it's really uh, typologically, I think. Uh, you have uh, you have Shebab using nationalist rhetoric, but they kind of hide it into Islamist uh, language. They will talk about nationalist disasters like the Wagalla ma massacre, but they would never say that it was Somalis that was massacred. It was Muslims that was massacred, and it happens to be that uh, Somali uh, Islamist Union that you have all the Muslims in East Africa will either be dominated by the Somalis or Urumu. So it's a kind of happy alternative for Somali nationalism as well. Uh, so there's a double-edgedness where I think you can have both in one person, actually. And, and that, that, that's very important. And it, yeah. Marianne, any final comments? Yep. <laughs> Mikael, any final comments? Thank you for listening to me talk a lot. Like. <laughs> Yes, thank you. Thanks a lot to, uh, to Mikael for sharing his work with us. Uh, thanks to Stig and Marianne for great comments. And thanks to the audience for showing up this morning and for asking great questions. And do come back for, uh, for the next Mideast uh, Breakfast Seminar. There's plenty to bite into. Have a good day, everybody. <laughs>